Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. This week, we are very happy to have Emily Larson, Assistant Curator of Art at Springville Museum of Art in Springville, Utah, where she has the enviable and stressful job, I'm sure, of overseeing the planning, management, and overall execution of the region's largest competition for contemporary artists, the annual Spring Salon. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Now in its 93rd year. The competition is only part of Emily's work. She also helps organize dozens of other shows at the museum, featuring content as diverse as quilt shows, themed contemporary art exhibitions, and the permanent collection of the museum, which is unparalleled in its congregation. I'm trying to think of the right word. It's got the largest collection of Utah art of any museum, probably all museums combined in the region. There are few people like Emily who has both a firm finger on the pulse of contemporary art with feet solidly planted in the past with that historic collection. I hope I got that all in. I hope I got it right. Whether or not I do, Emily, I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm thrilled you are at the top of my list of people that I've wanted to talk to as we launch this podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here, and you're too nice. I am probably the podcast's biggest fan, so <laughs> it's really a pleasure for me to be here. Well, I don't know how I don't know how much competition there is. In fact, I'm surprised more and more. the The funny thing is that when I went to the to the party that you held for the 93rd Salon, um, I was shocked at how many people had heard the podcast and came up to me. So you maybe you do have some competition, more than I know. I just don't hear a lot of people's reactions. Yeah, well, I think people in Utah are really excited about art. And I know artists, especially working in their studio, are listening to podcasts, audio tapes a lot. To, so to have something so locally interesting, yeah. um, I think people are really excited about it. I know everyone I've talked to about it has only had rave reviews. Oh, you know how to butter me up. <laughs> well, let's, let's, get, let's talk about the work you picked. I'm excited about what you picked. Why don't Why don't you introduce it? What did you pick? Who's it by? Go. Okay, so I picked a painting from Springville Museum of Art's permanent collection. It's called Jesus Christ is the God of That Land. It's done by Minerva Tyker in 1948. Um, oil on board, 40, almost 48 inches high by 24 inches wide. Um, and it's a great painting. Um, I'm really excited to talk about it. So... Okay, hold on a second. Don't you know that BYU is the only museum that has Tykerts? <laughs> they definitely have way more than anyone else, but we are, a few of us have a couple as well. And, and as far as Tykerts go, this is a gem. This is a remarkable Tykert. This is iconic. I think it, it, maybe this isn't the one that is the most re, one of the most reproduced, but it, maybe it is. It is incredibly... Um, iconic for her. Yeah. Let's, can you describe it? Let's, des- yes, let's describe yes, what the image course. is. So um, like many of Tykert's works, there's a border around with a, a kind of Mesoamerican motif that probably is more imagined than real. And then on the border it also says, Jesus Christ is the God of that l- land. There is the figure Jesus Christ. He's in white. There's a glowing halo around his head. And he's um, in front of 
the North American and South American continents, kind of that shape that you see on the globe that's very iconic. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's uh, these colors. This is this is something that I noticed. I recently went to an exhibition. It was at BYU. It's mm-hmm. closed recently of Tykert's works. And you could see, I, I don't know how many they had. I think it was over, it was definitely over 50. It could have been as many as 100 works that were on display. And not many were this jewel-like in their colors. A lot of them were were kind of pastel-y, mm-hmm. middle-toned um, um, work, a little more restrained in their palette. Um, maybe restrained is the wrong word for her. But there really wasn't the high chroma yeah. that I see in this. And, and I don't know if it's really that it's that different than the rest of her palette and works, or just it's the combination. Yeah, I think part of it is the subject matter and that real, I think a lot of her other works have a more um, complicated setting that they're in where this is so just kind of bold and graphic in the way that she's painted it and the subject matter that she's chosen. So I think the colors are a lot more saturated and there's a lot more fields of just flat color as yeah. well than there are in some of her other works. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There isn't like a, 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 a she hasn't done a lot with the ocean. She's really relied deliber- mm-hmm. on it being just this strong field of like a lapis lazuli blue. Mm-hmm. Boom. Yeah. Now, this piece, can you, where does this fit into her output? Maybe we should give a little biography of Tykert for those who aren't familiar with her. For some people, Tykert is a household name. Everybody, yeah. they, they all, they, they feel like they've known her all their lives. But for some people, Tykert is not a known quantity. Tell, tell us where she came from, a little bit about her. Okay. So Tykert, me and Ty- Minerva, if I can call her by her first name, we <laughs> share the same birthplace. We were both born in North Ogden, Utah. Really? Um, in the same city. And so she was born there. That's where her, I can't remember if it's maternal or paternal. I think it's maternal grandmother their homestead kind of was. Um, then her and her family, they move. They spend a lot of time in Idaho as she's growing up, but she's always kind of coming back to northern Utah for school to stay with her grandmother um, and to do some work. And then in 1909, she takes a nannying job in California with a family friend or relative. and Back that's then, where, were Mormon nannies really in demand just like probably, they are now? I guess they probably were. They've always been trustworthy, nice. People know women. they're not going to get, they're not going to drink and go run off and do something yeah. crazy. That's that's an, interesting, that's an interesting historical point. Somebody should do a master's thesis on yes, that. Yes, they should. <laughs> Sorry, I No, you're fine. In California is where she was first really exposed to great art. Her biographers and people who've written about her say she's been obsessed with art as a kid she always loved drawing she always had this natural talent for her but that's where she first saw museums and and fine art collections and then in 1912 she goes to the art institute of chicago and this was super influential for her career she studied with some really important mural artists at the art institute of chicago um and that the idea of mural painting marion wardle who was curator of american art at byu for several years has argued that that mural painting became such an important influence in her work and she really wanted to paint murals and paint like a mural painter would this would have been at the time of world's fairs world's Mm -hmm. world exhibitions and i know that this is kind of a lost art but we didn't have mass publication in the same way we do now of g clays and when they were doing dioramas for these world's fairs even where art was not a central focus but where it was more explanatory mm-hmm. for whatever was the central focus of the exhibition, 
there were classically trained artists from Munich, from France, who were doing these enormous murals. It's a kind of a lost skill. Yeah. But she she would have been a she would have absolutely been in the same zeitgeist as these people who had that skill set. Yeah, definitely. And she, um, in the books that are written about her by Marion Wardle and some of these other scholars, they talk about how learning from these mural artists and the philosophy behind it, that these murals were to educate and to, to kind of express shared values and um, municipal values, patriotic values, different shared values in different communities that these hmm. murals, that, that was really influential to her and in her work for the rest of her life. So after she goes to Art Institute of Chicago, she comes back. She's living, I think, in Idaho. She always in one of the, the mountain states and then kind of saving up money. In 1915, she goes to New York to study at the Art Students League. And this is where she studies with Robert Henry. The Ashcan School. Yeah. Very, like, they are cutting-edge American art. Yeah, this is people who are kind of fighting against the academy, fighting against those Gilded Age ideas about art and really coming up with new philosophies about what art can be and what it should be. And this was super influential to her. Robert Henry famously tells her to go back to Utah and paint the Mormon story. Um, and he really encourages all of his students to paint what they're passionate about and to be individual artists that they don't have to follow exactly what he wants or what anyone tells them, but to paint what they want to paint and paint what they see in the world. One of the things that fascinates me about that idea of go back and paint the Mormon story is it is almost idealistic to the point of artistic suicide, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and, and let me let me explain what I mean by that. Here's this guy. He's in New York. Henry, famous. He's got a, there is there's a kind of gallery scene going on that that he can plug himself into, and there are patrons on the coast just like there are now if you want to be an artist people don't necessarily think of go to idaho and wyoming and, and make a career <laughs> yeah. right maybe more and more that there are things like like park cities that are out there but this, that didn't exist there wasn't a gallery culture and for him to tell her as an instructive go paint the story of your people it seems like on the ledger of artistic um suggestions that that ledger was absolutely ripe and full of information on the, you have a new unique story, Minerva, that and your people have the stuff of great subjects for art. But there was no infrastructure. I mean, the church wasn't really patronizing art. There wasn't like a huge building program. We kind of take for granted, I think, that there's been decades of growth and buildings for yeah. things to go in. But, I mean... Yeah, in 1918, it seems kind of bizarre to say, leave New York, leave the center of the art world. Yeah, and, and I, don't, I don't know if she told it because... And I don't know if there are any third-party witnesses, but do we know what she... Did she come and immediately say, okay, brethren, I got something for you? Or did she come to... Uh, did she, did, she, did she go back to her home and store things up and just paint for herself for a while? Yeah, I think it's kind of both. I think she came back and painted. And there's some other things, experiences that she has that have been recounted in New York that made her really feel like she needed to come back west and, and be part of this western mountains area. Um, she gets married. And she does start painting in the 20s when she comes back. There are... Um, commissions for local churches and tabernacles and she is painting for these 
these larger structures and things, but it's not on a huge grand scale where the the corporate LDS or the headquarters of the LDS church is commissioning her. Yeah. But she is painting for local churches. In 19, I think it's 1931, Alice Merrill Horn takes her on as a client. And that is huge for Minerva Tiger. And for those who don't know who Alice Merrill Horn is, she was the founder of the Utah Museum and Arts Division. She is a major force behind patronage of the arts. She's overseen annual exhibitions. She's writing what is it, um, monuments? What's the title? Devotees and the their shrines. De- devotees and their shrines. That's what it is. And she's so she is, she is almost like the one house um, powerhouse, and she's also a suffragette. She's mm-hmm. she's a hero yeah. on all kinds of levels, and she takes on Tykert as a real. Um, she champions Tykert's cause. Oh, what yeah. comes of that? What do we know that oh, comes of that? Oh, great stuff. So she. Alice Merrill Horn here in Utah is then working with local government buildings, with churches getting her more commissions here in Utah. She's staging exhibitions at the ZCMI Tiffin Room. She's really exhibiting um, Minerva's work and really advocating for her as an artist. Um, there's some letters and an experience that's recounted in in Marion Wardle's book and in um, Marion Wardle's mother. I'm trying to remember her name, Laurie Eastwood, who's Minerva's daughter, is... Um, just published a book of the letters of Minerva Tyker. So you can actually read these letters. The Horn and and Tyker letters going back and forth. Well, and letters from all sorts of people, all types of Minerva Tyker letters, but there's a lot of these from Alice Merrill Horn back and forth. And there's one at one point where Minerva and her husband Herman are having trouble. They won't be able to make the mortgage payment. And Alice Merrill Horn's, helps get some cells done to make sure that they don't lose their home and is really just a champion for this artist. I would like to see there's this um, there's this trend that's going on right now in in London and in Paris to focus on the dealers of artists. So you've got Duran Ruel, who is the fo- who is behind a lot of the impressionists, and the the exhibitions have focused on their role as the patron and the um, instigator of a lot of the great projects, the things that kept them alive. And one of the stories you hear is that um, whenever someone needed pocket money or rent. They would go to their dealer and the dealer would say, okay, I got this taken care of. You just focus on the work. And that, in my opinion, when we we use these loaded terms in Mormonism of of, of a Michelangelo, right? They will have mm-hmm. a Michelangelo someday. But what we leave out is the idea of a Medici, yeah. right? And who's making it possible. And it seems like this horn element is really the unsung other half of Tykert. For a yeah, while, de- right? Yeah, definitely. Because she 30s. wouldn't have been able to do a lot of, that she was able to do if she didn't have someone like a horn who was backing her up at key moments in her life. Not that she owes everything to horn. No, I don't mean no, to but that. definitely that that furthered her career. It got her seen by a lot of people. I think. I mean, and I haven't done the research into this, but I think part of the reason maybe that today um, Minerva Tiger is so well known is partially and because of Alice Merrill Horn and the popularity of Tykert that she spread in the 30s and 40s. The whole time that she's doing this, I know that Tykert, and I hear stories about this when I'm with people who knew her or knew people who knew her, Mm -hmm. that she lives pretty modestly. She has a ranch. She loves her Western lifestyle. Mm -hmm. She's living in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And she's, she's painting these works in a kitchen. Yeah. Right? Like she's got these enormous paintings that she's doing. And then she takes them down to steam the vegetables and to do everything else. And she stores them out by the side of the house. Mm -hmm. She seems like a very austere woman in some ways and rough. Like she's almost a cartoon. 
of what you'd picture a a, a, a Western homesteader. It's like she's oh, a homesteader. Oh, for sure. Leader, she right? takes on that character so well of the homesteader of this independent Western woman who who went to the East and learned all these things but just came back and then really epitomized Western ways of life. And she almost does, in some ways, you can make her a caricature. And it's interesting, Marion Wardle in her Pageants and Paint book really argues how much um, pageants, theater, movies influenced Minerva Tyker and how she really had a flair for the dramatic. So I think in some ways she would love us talking about her as this character of the homesteader. Because <laughs> almost, almost as if she was a member of Buffalo Bill's exactly, touring company. Yeah. That she's just she's just crazy, crazy Tyker. Maybe yeah, crazy is the wrong no, word. But I, I, there were artists who had who had training that were LDS. There were those, there were the four art missionaries. I guess you could really count five. You had Herman Hogg, Edwin Evans, J.B. Fairbanks, John Hafen, and they had J.T. Harwood. And they all went to um, the Academy Julian. Then there's the second generation. And those guys are the Mahan Rise, the A.B. Wrights. Mm-hmm. And they go to the Academy Julian. And they also participate with Henry. But I wonder what the difference is between being a woman and being a man. Maybe it's an unanswerable question, but it seemed like those guys had careers. They could go and teach. They could go and work. And you get Mahan Rai who goes to New York and he Mm -hmm. goes to Italy and he goes to New York and he comes back to Utah and he's traveling and he's always got work. He could sustain himself as a full-time artist. She had as much, if not more training than her contemporaries and during her lifetime, it seemed like she always struggled for yeah. for the same attention. And I don't know. She was always working. Yeah. Right. But there's oh, there's this feeling. Maybe I'm wrong. There's this feeling that she had this magnum opus of more illustrations than had ever been done of the Book of Mormon mm-hmm. by anyone more than than Freeberg oh, conceptualized. Yeah. yeah. And no one took them while she was alive. I think right at the end of her life, she they gave did? them to BYU in the late 60s. She gave them to BYU, mm-hmm. which to me is kind I of, know, it's, oh, why it's, did she? It's heartbreaking, but this is something I've been thinking a lot about the last couple of days, too, because compared to those people, compared to A.B. Wright, compared to Mahan Rayon, compared to all of the art missionaries, I kind of feel like in some ways Minerva might be Mormon's first modernist. Hmm. Because... She's working with Henry, and even though her subject matter is very classical and historical, she's doing these historical themes. Her style is very much influenced by Henry and doing these big, expressive brushstrokes, flat planes of color. And I wonder if, because of her more modern style, she wasn't as accepted into the canon of LDS imagery until later in her in in the twentieth century, or maybe because of her style, she was eschewed by, well, or maybe here's the other thing I guess I was there, or maybe because she wasn't, she didn't see the same opportunities for commercialization mm-hmm. of her work. Yeah, she was able to experiment and develop her own style yeah. that wasn't as beholding to commercial pressures. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that as being right. I'm just saying that whatever it was. Her style was definitely different. It was all her own, maybe yeah. more so than anyone else's. In fact, I remember Vern Swanson once saying something that puzzled me. I was younger. I must have been, it must have been like 2002. There was this trove of Tykerts that came on the market. And they were done as part of the Work Progress Act. Oh, yeah. And that was when a lot of great Utah art was done. The federal government mm-hmm. funded artists to do public works. And that's when we got 
a lot of Tykert's that were in schools. And there were four major pioneer images that were in a school that were each like 15, 20 feet long. Yeah. And the school had been had been demolished, but before it was demolished, they had a big sale. And the only one who took these rolled up canvases was the janitor. Oh my gosh. Right? Yeah. The janitor took him home, kept him in his attic. He came back, they came on the market. And I was there when they were being unrolled. And Vern said at the time, Dr. Vern Swanson, who was the director of the Springville Museum of Art at the time, and he said that she was the first true fine artist that Mormons created and or that we ever had. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, there's a distinction between illustration and fine art. And he didn't qualify it at the time. And I've got my own versions of mm-hmm. what that means. But your version seems like, your answer seems like part of this, is that she was a modernist in the sense that she truly saw it as art. Yeah. Right? It was truly art as, as an end in and of itself, not so much as an illustration yeah. as it was the final work was yeah. meant to be a statement on its own. Regard, and it wasn't just meant to be, this is a verse and this is my narration yeah. of that verse. It, it, it she went, wanted her work to stand completely alone. Right. And I think it's really interesting. She wanted it to stand alone, but she also wanted it to be read immediately. Um, it's recounted. And I remember when I was interning with Marion World at BYU, she would tell me how Minerva would always say that she wanted to paint so that he who runs may read, which was this quote from he Edwin, who runs may read. Edwin Blashfield, who was one of the mural artists that she studied with in Chicago. And that, that someone running by her paintings or running by a mural could understand it, that it didn't take a lot of really serious looking, that the immediate looking could reveal the meaning wow see when when that comes to mind it um, this is the 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 things that seem diametrically opposed to me but are both true of her mm-hmm. one is you can take it all in in a snap right yeah on the other hand unlike something that is purely illustrative and i I know people are going to have problems with my use of the word illustration. And so take it very liberally as I use this term. But it's the idea that instead of being something that you look at once and you have just the one interpretation potentially. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not true of all illustration, right? Her work seems to be fine art with a capital F, capital A, in the sense that I can look and meditate on it and get multiple meanings that... To me, the definition, if I had to have my own working definition, mm-hmm. what's the difference between fine art and illustration? It would be illustration illustrates the text. It would be the fine art adds multiple meanings of interpretation to the text. Oh, yeah. And so for her to be able to go to do both, yeah. which I think she does pass that test for me personally. Oh, for sure. I can look at it, get that. What is it? The running man reads? He who runs may read. He who runs may read. I feel like I can get that, but then I feel like I could spend an hour... It was so painful to go through that exhibition at BYU because I could only absorb so many things at one time. I needed to go back to it 20 or 30 Mm -hmm. times, I think. I went back to it four times. But if I had gone to it 20 or 30 more times... You could I still have picked up on so many. Yeah, things. I still yeah. wouldn't. I still wouldn't have reached no, all the depths. Sure. Well, and I think that's especially where that mural training comes in 
so well into her into her work in that that Marion Wardle, and I keep saying Marion Wardle because she's the the scholar of Minerva Tiger. She and, is the the main the main yeah. scholar. Yeah. Um, she's argued so well that the mural painting was so influential on Minerva's work because the same thing if you have a mural in your church or in your classroom or in your school that you see all the time, they want you to be able to see it and understand it, but they also want it to be something new that you're picking up every time you're in that space that you can continue to look at it and not get bored or that it becomes just part of the architecture. And I think that there's yeah. some kind of combination of that that's happening too with a lot of her work. Okay, so let me let me ask when I when I look at this image. Where on earth is this coming from? This imagery that she's got? What is what is her inspiration for a Christ floating over the, the a map of of the the, the 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 North and South America. I I I ask that. I want to make it sound like the most absurd question ever <laughs> in a way because I I think um, and I, I I was passing this by when I was taught when I was talking with Eric um, uh, Biggert who helps with the po- who's who's a co-founder of Zion Art Society and helps with the podcast. And I often test these ideas with them beforehand. I said, I feel like we're too familiar with Tykert, some of us. Yeah. To the point that we see these images and we think, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. But if we put ourselves in the mind of somebody who's never seen this image by Tykert before, where did she come up with that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I want to add just a tiny bit more to her biography. Please do. So this is 1948. She goes to Mexico with her daughter, Lori, in early 40s, like 1943, 1944, and really Mm -hmm. takes in the culture there. She then, in 1947, 1948 is when she, no, 1946, 1947, I think, is when she paints the Manti Temple. She's the first woman artist commissioned to paint murals in the temple. She paints the world room, and it's this huge, giant project that she does. And then it's not till the early 50s, like 1951, that she paints those Book of Mormon murals. So this is right in between Manti Temple and the Book of Mormon murals. So she's definitely immersed in the doctrine, immersed in these, these questions. She wants to do these big projects that are related to church doctrine. And for me, this image... I think it comes from a lot of places. I think it comes from that wanting to express an idea so clearly of Christ visiting the Americas and doing it in the way that's the most easily read and understood. The other thing that I think is really interesting and is um, how Marion Wardle talks about how pageants were very influential on Minerva's work and how um, she was involved in pageants. Pageants were this really big thing in Mormon culture. Describe what you mean by pageants because pageants don't... Because well, yeah. a Mormon pageant is different than a beauty pageant. Yeah, it's not a beauty pageant, but a Mormon pageant. Like these theatrical productions that like kind of like, ro- oh, what are those called? Anyway, I can't remember. But like the Hill Cumorah pageant that's been going on since 1917 It's kind of like York. a ballet or opera mm-hmm. on steroids. It's almost like a an 18th century French version of an opera where it's it's almost like a spectacle. Yes. Right? right. And we use the word pageants, but it's... It's it's dance, it's music, it's costume, mm-hmm. it's scenes. Diaghilev, who did the the ballet Russe, would have been would have seen something common in Mormon the, these Mormon yeah, theatrics, yeah. right? Yeah. So so she's looking at these, and I guess like I can see the yeah the, the, the there's a lot of there. processional imagery in Minerva's work, not in this particular piece, and a lot right. of a lot of these these kind of tableau like settings that that. Sh- 
that really relate to these pageants and these theatrical scenes where people would stand up, you would be looking from very far distances and you could get the basic idea of whatever scene's going on. And I don't know because I am not a historian of pageantry or pageants and right. but and I don't know if you can post this on your website because I'm going to show you an image. But this image of the Christ coming down that you can see I'm sure at we pageants. Can do um, this I don't know if this was happening this early. This is but this is the um it, this is the, the the one that happens in where where does this happen? The, this one's from the Hill Camorra pageant Hill in Palmyra, or not in, at Hill Camorra in, and it shows this image that I'm showing. Micah has a Christ that's descending from the skies almost by magic um, into a a Central American typical Book of Mormon scene. So this is part of the question that I don't know if we can answer, but it's a question that's fascinating to me. Is if you were um, if you were a religious artist in the late 19th century, um, I just bought a couple of, of works. I just was part of the purchase of a, of a couple of mm -hmm. works where the artist was called the Raphael of the North, right? He was Dutch. People <laughs> compared him to Raphael because there was a long iconography of depicting as old masters up until, you know, you could even go back to Byzantium and before where there was this adopted steady iconography of how to depict the Old and New Testament, right? And so you could pick up on these devices and mm -hmm. you could play with them almost like a, a jazz chart a little bit and you could, you could, uh, um, you, you could, um, uh, what's the, you could improv a little bit on those things. But when you are Minerva Teichert, this is pre Arnold Freeberg. In fact, I think Arnold Freeberg was looking at a lot of her stuff. Yeah, well, and they and become she, contemporaries at yeah, kind of yeah. at this point. The and she was she didn't have a large audience for these things. And when I think about how exciting it would be to have a rich set of scriptures with a, its own iconography, you've got mm -hmm. you've got Leahonas, you've got old world new world mm -hmm. you got these you you look at this um you talked about this mesoamerican um kind of uh, um, border that she's painted that's inspired by it she goes on tours to to latin america mm -hmm. and she's really there there were the dancourt waglands who'd kind of gone a little bit but there's no one at the level of ambition of tyker oh, no. before or since who's saying to her this is how alia hona's done this is what Nephi looks like. This is what it looks like mm -hmm. in Latin America when we're doing this. And I, I just think of like the level of experimentation that she's participating in and the boldness she has. Oh, yeah. No and one's taking telling such her. important risks. Yeah. No one's telling her how to do this. No. She's so brave and courageous. That's one thing I so admire about Minerva Tyker is that in this culture that has so much tradition, especially like when she painted the Manti temple murals, and yeah. she says... I'm going to paint this my own way. And she does a, a a procession of the world instead of that barren landscape of the world rooms in a lot of the other temple murals yeah. and, and deciding to take these risks and paint in her own way and having the confidence to do that. There's this, there's this really, um, there, there are three images that kind of blow my mind. One is, um, there's a Samuel the Lamanite that she had in the exhibition at BYU and Samuel the Lamanite doesn't look like he's more than 15 years old. And yeah. I thought, Holy wow. cow. No one had ever depicted Samuel the Lamanite before, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. And she imagined him in a way that none of us still even really no. think of him as. Number two image was 
And that was up close. That was a very classically composed image. He's standing up on a wall. He's a beautiful male, um, not entirely nude, but it would have been something that her drawing teacher in Chicago or Henry would have recognized as a classically informed subject. Mm-hmm. And then you get to this. And, and you think of, of, of Arnold Freeberg's image of Christ in the Americas coming down. It looks like a movie set yeah, in a way, right? Which is, you know, he's in the middle of that. He's been mm-hmm. working on the Ten Commandments with Cecil B. DeMille by the time he does that image. And you've got people in the foreground looking up at an image of Christ coming down, and he's way in the background. This is totally abstract by comparison. Oh, yeah. It's Christ floating above the earth. It's the opposite of Freeberg's image. Yeah, it Freeberg's really is. Freeberg's image is Christ in the distance, you looking at him come. This is Christ way above the earth, descending yeah. potentially down into it. Yeah. Her and imagination became, was like, it was oh, yeah. out there. Well, and her ability to use visual symbols. Again, so you can re- you see this and it's just so clear. Christ is all powerful and he's coming down to the Americas and... It just takes a split second for you to understand that doctrine that she's trying to get across. And it's just such a powerful depiction of Christ, too, in my opinion. I I love the way that she's depicted Christ. What do you like about him? I just think that there's a a soft power to him. You know, there's Hmm. a lot of, um, especially like Renaissance, and this is not my expertise, so I might be messing this up. No, but the idea of Christ as like male and female combined having all of those divine qualities and i think there is some of that in this image where there's this softness to christ but also this power i love the white robes and he does really look transcendent like he is above the world and really superimposed on top of almost. he's definitely not the masculine christ that's got a v-shaped bodybuilder no. image that we have today but there is also something he almost looks like a crucifixion yes. um, ivory or carved mm-hmm. um, polychrome statue of some kind where he's got that somewhat contraposto leg hip mm-hmm. um movement and and but it but you're right there's a real softness and beauty yeah to him so it's it's not a harsh mortified christ of course it's a resurrected christ that's descending down but there's no christ quite like the one that she's done no okay so i have got to change subjects here for a moment i know this may be a harsh no but if if i've got the person who's at the dead heart of the spring salon and i don't get a chance to ask her a few questions about the salon is this all right if i ask you a little bit about it can i say can I know you're trying to change subject? Can That's I change fine. one more? Say one more please thing about do, Minerva, please do. and then we can move on. You can only say one thing. It will just can. be one thing. Okay, and <laughs> I would love to talk to with you more about this at some point, and I'd love to hear anyone else's responses too. Okay. But after I saw that same exhibition at BYU, yeah, and you come out and you see Brian Krzyzewski's nativity right there, there becomes to me when I saw that, and it was brilliant placing by the BYU curators and exhibition team. There was this clear line for me from Minerva Tyker through the art and belief movement to Brian Krzyzewski and Lee Udall Benyon and Kathleen Peterson and these people who are doing figurative religious painting today in Mormon art. And I think Minerva's influence on the way that people do Mormon art today, religious painting, I don't think people have talked about it enough. I certainly would have never made that connection until you said it. And now that you've said it, I absolutely see it. But here is also a question I have about it. And this does segue directly into the Spring Salon, which is... I don't think that, I think that people who really love Teichert, who are figurative artists, point to 
the non that they point to the fact that she was trained as a hardcore academic artist, mm-hmm. right? Figurative work at the University of Chicago. I can't remember the name of the professor she had who she really loved and who loved her, who was maybe the number one um, um, textbook maker of figurative art. In um, he was he it wrote, Vanderpool. Yes, okay. he wrote the manuals for for anatomy for a lot of the schools that were in America, and I think it even went carried on to Europe. He kind of was the second generation of Bark books that um, that were for his generation. And Henry was also a hardcore figurative traditionalist. Mm-hmm. And when you look at Lee Udall Benyon and Brian Kershiznik and some of these other artists that 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 are. You know, maybe I don't know what they if they would describe themselves as hardcore, classically trained figurative no. artists, and I don't think other artists would look at them that way. So, but but is it fair to say she belongs to us as a figurative, classically trained artist, and to marginalize her her or you know what I mean? I guess yeah, I guess yeah, we it is interesting. That, well, and I think it goes all the way back to Henry and his 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 kind of synthesized role as a classicist and a modernist there's a lot of people who would say henry definitely not a modernist and there's a lot of people who would say definitely not a classicist and i think that synthesis is really evident in teichert's work and i think again evident in some of these contemporary artists who are using figures but doing them in a more abstracted way and doing like a lot of patterns a lot of flat planes of color like minerva teichert and um I think I mean, that, Colby Sanford. Yeah, is Colby Sanford is yeah, and his especially the way that he does brushstrokes is very reminiscent of Minerva Tyker. I think that the it might even just be in the zeitgeist of Mormon culture and seeing these images, but I think there's definitely this this plane, and I definitely see Minerva Tyker's influence more on people like that than I do on Ryan Brown or Jeff Hine or Casey Childs, right. who's who are working in very classical traditions. And, and as they've talked on the podcast, they're more influenced by the people the church has used, like Hoffman and Block. And I would be very interested to have a seance and find out what she would have to say <laughs> yeah, she about might think... her legacy. And and I, I don't feel like we need you need to pick sides. And it does seem like there's often, and this does go to the, the salon, it does seem like there is a delineation between um, a traditional strain that is part of our culture not even just in the church but just in regionally yeah, yeah. and and between modernism i want to ask I've, so i've got some specific questions okay, yes. i want to ask about the salon first of all um how many artists on general submit to the salon you just had it it's up for yeah. is, is it still on show it is for two more weeks so it two closes more weeks. july 8th okay it's always it always feels too short but it's already yeah, it's always I know, up for i can't a long believe time. it's already almost over so how many artworks are submitted in general and how many of those are kept on walls and how many of them are rejected okay so there's about this year there was just less than 900 we were at like 887 and then we accepted around 240 i think okay um usually the acceptance rate is between 20 and 30 percent okay okay so why 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 only 20 or 30 percent i mean the museum is only so big and only so many things can fit Within the galleries. So a simple, like, democratic answer. It's not that there's, like, somebody out there with a chopping block saying, no. I mean, we'll only the staff 20 or 30. does it's... end up becoming the chopping block with the jurors and saying, there, we can't fit this many. You have to you have to cut some more because there is a limitation of space. Um, yeah. I've judged the show in the past. And, and I have noticed that, um, 
you know, the, it, it did seem like space was always the issue. It was, you know, mark the ones you definitely want to keep, mark the ones you definitely want to take out. And then we'll whittle it down, whittle it down, whittle it down. Mm-hmm. We'll do several passes that come through. Something I noticed this year is that there seems to inevitably be this choice between an artist will submit a big work or a small work. And then you have the impossible choice as a judge of saying, oh, this big work seems really great. But if I pick the small work, I can fit two or three more artist works in. But you had a wall this year that was in one of the main galleries that you you had things that you you hung two or three deep. Yes. And it seemed like that was a really great way. And it seemed like a lot of them were second works by artists that had mm-hmm. other works that were already on show that were hung, you know, just in mm-hmm. lines, right? Yeah, yeah. Was that a deliberate choice to be um, more inclusive? We have, in the last couple of Dread shows, we've been doing more salon walls. I think it was in a more prominent place, which I like because I think that it becomes this really nice kind of anchor for the room to have all of these works in mass um, that you can look at. Um, I think we were doing a, we have been doing more salon walls to try and include more works. And I think also just when we're working with visitors and they're an interesting place to stop and look at a lot of things because sometimes multiples of things, even if they're not necessarily related can be more powerful curatorially. So let me ask a question about, um, Rejection. Yes. Okay. Because there are artists, and let's not name any names. No names. But there are some artists who are really successful, right? And who are admired by other artists who consistently do not get into the salon. Is there what what do you tell artists? Man, so one thing I say to artists, and I'm happy to say on the podcast, is that at there's probably when when you drain, you know you can speak to this if you think this is true or not, Micah. There's probably 10% of the works that are submitted that maybe everyone agrees on. These 10% are really great. Everyone loves them. There's maybe 30, 30%, let's say, that are not good, not up to the same quality, not as technically advanced, not as conceptually interesting. And those are, those are the ones that are easy to say, okay, these ones are out. But then you have the 60% that's in the middle, and it could really go to any of them you know it could be any combination of those works and it really speaks to what what the jurors are and you drawn are not, to that day you're not making i'm not decisions. on the jury at thank all heavens. no yeah thank goodness because I, I mean not thought thank heavens in the sense that you no, don't i would be I would terrible you, juror. Be ju- you wouldn't be. well i think i'm I too close in the i think i would be too biased in a way there's plausible deniability yeah right? yeah that's what i mean sure. oh yeah by. it does help protect it's me this idea that that um it is nice to have the have jurors but in a way there's and I remember being a juror, you have um, juror, you, you tend to, as a museum, pick a one who's classically and traditionally informed mm-hmm. and one that's a modernist who's a little more contemporary. And that's a kind of magical but somewhat toxic or yeah. mix. It's both. It works better some years than others. Yeah. And, and I've been I've judged twice and one year it worked really well and one year it didn't work very well. But in either case, I felt like you had advocates for both because yeah. There, there's some museums that don't cater, don't make the choice to cater to both contemporary and traditional work. Oh, the fact yeah. that you, as a museum, have made the choice to continue that tradition is incredibly laudable, in my opinion. I love it, and maybe it's because I just love everything. I've been described before as a hardcore moderate, so it's hard for me to take sides sometimes. <laughs> but um, I love that in one space we can have something that's super contemporary, super conceptual, and then something completely classical and traditional and I love that all of these different types of art and 
subject matter and medium and style can all be in one room at, in Springville. I think yeah. to me, it's one of the most exciting things about the the salon is that to me, it's it's like the sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I'm just sorry. that, just that it's exciting to have all of that in one place. To me, I like it, it is. And your enthusiasm is always infectious, and I find myself even now, I barely contain myself how excited I get about it. I'm getting the signal that we need to. We need to we need to end, but before we do, okay, I've got to ask this, and this sounds like such a hackneyed like, like like list thing to do, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Okay. What are a couple of trends that you're noticing, either in materials, methods, and techniques, mm-hmm. subjects? What just give me just give us a couple to lead out, and maybe we'll have to have a follow up another time. Yeah, about, yeah. About more about the contemporary mm-hmm. art rather than focusing on a single artist? Because I think I need to do both with you. Yeah. But but what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Yeah. One thing that I think a lot of people are doing, both who are working more classically, working more contemporary, is is drawing on personal experience and autobiography and, and really turning inward more than... Um, uh, at like historical or literary or subject matter that they're really taking their own experiences in their own life and and using that as subject matter Interesting. even for landscape artists for still life I feel like that there's this personal human connection and and the very specific becomes this universal so it's theme. less I'm going to go to arches and document this yeah. thing that's been done before it's more like I'm going to paint my home yeah well and you see this with like um, so many different artists. A lot of the ones we talked about, Colby Sanford is a great example. Crystal Harper, her work, I feel like she's doing these great floral, still life kind of paintings, and they always have this personal or religious connection that that makes them so much more than just... And I see that with so many artists. Crystal Harper in particular is one of these artists who technically I think is... She's doing incredible work. Oh yeah, it's so and, great. And she is. She does seem to be part of this trend. Her application of paint and strokes, which seems to be, um, first of all, she's doing it better than almost anyone else. But seems to be um, pulled back a little bit. The kind of focus mm-hmm. of how she's laying down pigment, and 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 how things come together on your eye and in your mm-hmm. field of vision, rather than being mixed. It's not divisionism or or uh, post. It's it's not. Um, there's a word I'm looking for. It's it's not pointillism, pointillism. but it's it's something that's another level. Yeah. That I saw something that was akin to it a lot in the in the in the salon. Well, we're out of time. I wish we weren't. I could talk I for know, hours with you. Too. This is this is this is so much fun to have you. you we've just got to have you as a regular. You just got to be regular. <laughs> let me um let me first, let me end by saying thank you, Emily, for coming. Emily Larson is the assistant curator for art at the Springville Museum of Art. I'd like to thank her for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works we discussed on our website, along with the picture of the pageant that you brought. We'll be sure to get that on. You can see those at zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab, along with information on the exhibits that, uh, that Emily is currently a part of, especially the salon, which ends in two weeks. Um, for more information with artists and more interviews with collectors and scholars subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes I'm Micah Christensen thank you for listening